So let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 21, please. Acts chapter 21. And we'll continue going through this narrative and gleaning from it what we can at the portion of the narrative which describes the Apostle Paul and his arrival in Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 21, and you can look at, you can look at verse, well, you can look at verse 15. We've already covered some of that, but we'll just read it again. Let's pray together now and ask the Lord. You know, this is part of worship, right? Sometimes people get this dichotomy in their minds that like we go to church and there's the worship time and then there's like the rest of the service or there's the preaching time and like the the, the segment of the service that is devoted to singing songs is called worship, and then the rest of the song, the rest of the service is whatever. The entire assembly is worship. God is worshipped when we give heed to the teaching of His Word. For someone to stand up and preach and teach God's Word is a gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given. And that gift is being, it's a divine gift that's being exercised. The words that are being read, every one of them is God-breathed, right? And every one of us is edified by God's Word. So it's a, it's a very holy practice and it's part of our worship. So give your attention now to God's Word and we want to pray and just ask Him to be honored in this. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for this blessed time to preach Your Word. Thank you for the gift that you've given to me, and I just want to use it for your glory, because I'm nothing. But you, the worker in your children, are the one who receives all the glory. Help me to speak, though it's you we need to hear. Help all of us, including me, to listen, because all of us need to hear. May your word be magnified and glorified, and, you may, and may you teach us exactly what we need to know. And may we go from here and be doers of it. And of course, of all, in all things, may we walk in love. Because if we have all knowledge but we don't have love, we're just puffed up and we're nothing. And so build us up. Edify your people. Build us up in love and help us to pursue love as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 15 of Acts chapter 21. Let me just read a little bit of this for you. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day... Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told them in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. That's as far as we went last week. Continuing, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you 
that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So here we are. We're right in the middle of studying day two of the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem. And what we saw last week was how he went and he interacted with the elders and he described all of the things, not that he had done, but all the things that the Lord had done through his ministry and everyone together gave all the glory to God. Good, right? Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Now without it seems stopping to draw a breath, there is a bit of a problem. Problem is not maybe the right word because we serve a sovereign God and the Lord has purpose in everything, even the challenges that He permits to arise. But there is a little bit of a challenge here and some of that challenge has to do with the fact that over the past few weeks in our teaching, it's come up in a few different ways uh, that the early days of the church were a transitional time. Do you remember last week when we talked about the leadership structure of the church? We pointed out that the elders really weren't on the scene yet in the very beginning of the church. So the early church at Pentecost was headed by the apostles. Then when you got to chapter 15 and you saw that council that gathered together to deal with what to do about the Gentiles who had believed the gospel, uh, you had the church being led by the apostles and by elders. So elders had been called and raised up. And then by the time you get to this point in the church history, you don't see the apostles in the church anymore. They're out serving as missionaries. That's what the word apostle means. It means sent. And they were sent out to spread the word of God even farther beyond Jerusalem. And the leadership of the church has been handed over to the leadership form that persists in the church today, which is that it is led by pastors, led by elders. In this case, a board of elders, a group of elders, but with one who was the senior over them as he's uh, set off there in the text. James is the is the head elder, and you have the rest of the elders. So that's one way you saw that it was sort of a transitional period. We talked last week also, as we have seen in 1 Corinthians, that certain spiritual gifts served the purpose of that transitional period. Speaking in tongues, 
especially. Speaking in tongues was not a gift that was given for the edification of the church. And when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he was trying to get them out of that practice because the way that they were practicing speaking in tongues was not edifying anyone. It was confusing everybody and creating a bad testimony for the church. And furthermore, they were doing it carnally and they were doing it influenced by their former pagan lives and their former pagan religions. And so Paul taught them tongues are for a sign and a sign for unbelievers, right? And so you saw there was a transitional period starting at Pentecost when that first group of 120 believers spoke with tongues. And you saw the tongue speaking continue. And Paul didn't tell them this is where the transition comes in. Paul didn't forbid them to speak in tongues, but he set some parameters over it. Only one or two of you are going to speak, and you're only going to speak if there's a translator. Because what Paul was seeing was the church transitioning from its infancy into its more mature form, where the important thing about what happens in the assembly was people hear things that they understand, so their understanding can grow, and so that they can be edified. right? And so, little plug for Thursday night. Thursday night, we'll talk about the practice of prophesying. And the important part that that has in edifying the church versus speaking in tongues. But the church was in transition. The text that Brother Bob read for us this morning, and we're going to read it later in the sermon today, at the very end of the passage, talked about how the old covenant was passing away. And the, and the new covenant was coming in. But it wasn't, while, while spiritually speaking, strictly theologically speaking, strictly speaking from the perspective of God, the moment that Jesus died, that was the end of the, the practical usefulness of the old covenant. And God signified it by ripping that veil in half. And all of those earthquakes, that was the end of it. I mean, the law, the purpose the law, if you use it lawfully, the purpose that the law serves now is it reveals to us the righteousness of God. We ought to desire to walk lawfully. We ought to desire to do what is good and right and lawful before the Lord. But as a system of religious exercise and as a system whereby a person attempts to justify themselves before God, the law is completely dead. It is passed away. Paul died to it, he said, right? And so, but even though that actually happened in that moment that Jesus died, what do you see here? You see the obvious situation where Jews who have believed the gospel, these are not, these are not Jews who are persecutors of the Christians. These are Jews who are the congregation. They're not just part of the congregation. They're the congregation of the Jerusalem church. Jews who believe and were told what? They're zealous for the law. And that's a bit of a difficulty, as you can read in some of the things that, uh, that the apostle, the, that the elder said to Paul, because the opponents of the gospel, the Jews who were not believers, the Jews who were against the gospel, twisted what Paul was teaching among the Gentiles to create a division in the church. And so you're, you're walking in this transitional period and, and John MacArthur and other preachers that I have listened to and read make the good point that the, while the tearing of the veils, the tearing of the temple's great veil was a great sign that the end of the old covenant had come, the real sign that just beyond that was when God brought the judgment of the Romans upon 
Jerusalem in 70 AD and the entire temple, one stone at a time, was torn down, right? So there was your real, real emphatic sign that the days of the Old Covenant were over. Judaism is still attempted to be practiced. There are still synagogues everywhere in the world and God is not done using the Jewish people and the day is going to come when the entire remnant of Jews on the earth at that right time is going to believe the gospel and is going to turn to Jesus. But you have all of this Jewish religious activity that still goes on even though they cannot keep the law because the law requires the altar and the temple and everything else, right? That's God's way of saying, no, 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 that covenant is set aside. The new covenant in Christ's blood is the one that we follow. Amen? Do you understand that? Now, Look at this. So it says, here's what they say. Uh, You see, looking in the middle of verse 20, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. That's a good thing, right? Right? (laughs) Right? You want Jews? Listen, these are Jews who believed. These are Jews who believed the same gospel of Jesus that you and I believe. That's a good thing. And he says, they are all zealous for the law. Because in their minds, Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies concerning their Messiah. Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke of. This was awesome to them. And what that did in their minds is it made them even more zealous for their law. This would go on to create some problems eventually because some of the unbelieving Jews who rejected Jesus then would go out and they would go among the places where the gospel was being preached to the Gentiles and they would try to tell the Gentiles because they either did not understand nor they or they just flat out rejected or both, which it probably was, the true gospel of Christ, Christ. And they would try to tell Gentile believers, you cannot be saved unless you get circumcised and keep the law. So there was this zeal for the law. Now, look at the form that it takes. So they're zealous for the law, verse 21 But they have been informed about you, now listen to this, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. See what it says there? They've been informed that Paul teaches the Jews that are among the Gentiles. Not what he teaches the Gentiles, but that he teaches the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. In other words, he's going around among the Gentiles and telling them to forsake the law. And then he's also teaching them with the accusation was that they shouldn't circumcise their children. That he was teaching Jews not to circumcise their children. That's what they had heard. Right? And then he was also teaching they heard that they should not walk according to the customs. Right? In other words, walk how they live. So, so really everything was covered. What they had been told... These Jews who were Christians and part of the church in Jerusalem. What they had been told about Paul was he was going around through all the Gentile lands where he was preaching the gospel and telling the Jewish people there who were among the Gentiles, forsake the law, don't circumcise your children, and don't walk according to the customs anymore. The the regulations that they would live by, the dietary laws and 
Sabbaths and, and holidays and everything. Just, just forsake it all, right? That was all a twisting of the truth. That wasn't actually what Paul taught. And we'll look into that for a minute. But here's the first thing I want you to understand. And I want you to turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. There are two books in the New Testament that specifically deal with the issue of the law and how the law was fulfilled in Christ. And now the law of Moses has no more sway over the life of the person who believes the gospel and is a child of God, right? One of those two books was written to emphasize to the Gentiles that they, uh, that they believed the gospel and that was enough and that they should not submit to anyone telling them that they must be circumcised in order to be saved. That book was... Who said it? Who said it? Someone said it. Galatians. That is correct. Galatians was a book that was written to cover that. And then there is a book that was written to basically these people who are in Jerusalem. And that's Hebrews. There was a book that was written, there is an epistle that is written for the Jewish believer in Christ who needs to understand this setting aside of the law of Moses in favor of the new covenant. That book is the book of Hebrews. Hebrews and Galatians in many ways have the same theme even though they read very differently. But the reason is because Galatians is to address the Gentile who had believed to try to prevent the Gentile from thinking that he needs to submit to circumcision and keeping the Jewish law. And then there is Hebrews, which was written to the Jewish mind, which was zealous for the law, but needed to be taught that's not the way that you need to live anymore. That's not really the way you need to be anymore. And God was very patient with this. It was transitional. God was patient and gave time for this. It's not like, like I said, when Jesus died, the veil was torn. It was done. The realities that are put forth in the book of Hebrews were all finished when Jesus died. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. Right? But God didn't expect, of course, that every Jew, every true God-fearing Jew, was going to just immediately get all that. Right? And the church began among the Jews in Jerusalem, and there was, there was some time that God was granting, this transitional period between the days of the Old Covenant and the days of the New Covenant, if you want to think of it that way, even though even though the reality, the substance of it is, it happened in an instant. So, I want you to just see the point of the book of Hebrews on this subject. And I, you know, I tell you, I mention it all the time. It seems like almost every sermon. I'm always amazed how God, I, I don't plan these things this way, but the way God allows like one church event to like spill into the next one. It just so happens that yesterday... Uh, at the men's fellowship, Brother Josh Vasquez was sitting at a table with me, and uh, and he just brought up, I'm reading through Hebrews and having a hard time understanding it, or something like that. 
So I started breaking down a little bit the book of Hebrews, the very thing that we're going to be talking about here today. So, so some of the other guys were in, some of you guys were here yesterday. You heard a little bit of this while we were talking yesterday, just informally. And now here we are looking at it. All right. Now listen, let me just share a few things out of the book of Hebrews so you understand this issue of Jews who still were zealous for the law and how God patiently dealt with them. And now this letter, Hebrews, was written to bring them to that point where they realized they don't need to like adhere to the law of Moses anymore. It starts off in chapter 1 and verse 1 and says this. Just a few passages I want to read. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Now just stop right there with that opening. The book opens with what? A comparison between how God used to talk to us and how God talks to us now. So the very opening of the book throws that gauntlet down. God's, I'm reluctant to say God's doing something different because he's not. All God is doing is he's doing the thing that the old covenant was always looking ahead to. But God is doing the thing now that the way that he used to speak to us was pointing to, right? The prophets prophesied of Christ who would come. Every prophet would come and preach to Israel or to Judah and they would preach and they'd warn them about their sins and they'd warn them about some captivity that was coming, some judgment was coming. But threaded in all of those prophecies was about a future restoration of Israel and there were even statements and verses about how the Gentiles would be included in that kingdom as well. And they were prophecies of Messiah who would come, Jesus who would come and swing open a a new covenant that all the world, all who believe, could come into. So God spoke in various times and in various ways in the past to the fathers by the prophets, but now He's spoken to us by His Son. Jesus, it's so perfect, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that the Word was made flesh, And dwelt among us, right? And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That chapter in the prologue of the Gospel of John goes on to identify that word as Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And that word, the Greek word, logos. Logos. You know, the word. You know, that's who Jesus is. He's the word incarnate. The Word in the flesh. And how perfect then that Hebrews opens up by talking about how God speaks to the world. How God speaks to the Jews and speaks to the world by Jesus, His Son. Jesus is God's message to the world. Jesus is God's message of redemption and salvation to Israel and to the Gentiles. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Amen? It says... Just continue reading that sentence. It's all one sentence. God, you what? Has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. 
who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Wow. Wow. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, as opposed to lambs and bulls and goats being sacrificed on an altar. When he himself had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So Jesus is even greater than the angels, which is not something that any human priest could say. You understand? So see how Hebrews is being written to show people that Jesus is all we need. We don't even, we don't, in other words, the point is, you don't need the priesthood who are really the managers and the caretakers and the operators, if you want to put it that way, of the system of the old covenant. Jesus has a more excellent name than angels, right? And, and obviously angels are over any human priesthood, right? So Jesus is just the way. Jesus is the way, right? Amen? Look at chapter 4 and verse 14 of Hebrews. Sometimes people read Hebrews and it just seems a little thick. It's a little hard to get your mind around what's going on. The way to, the easiest tool to help you understand when you read and try to understand the book of Hebrews is to remember what it is. It's a writing that is written to Jewish believers to help them to see really one specific thing, that the way of the new covenant is God's way now, and the old covenant is not God's way anymore. That's the main point of the book of Hebrews. Lots of words, lots of complicated ways to get there, but that's, that's the point. Chapter 4 and verse 14 says, Seeing that we have a great high priest, listen, like I said, in a way, the centerpiece of the old covenant was the priesthood. They did everything. Seeing that, and, and there was a high priest, right? Every year there was a high priest. That high priest would go behind that veil that was torn on the Day of Atonement once every year to atone for himself and to atone for the sins of the people. Seeing that we have a great high priest, look, who has passed through the heavens, not passed through the veil to the ark in the Holy of Holies, but has passed through the heavens. You see? Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession being that Jesus is Lord. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? We have a high priest who's not just a, the priest of a, some nation. We have a high priest who personally knows us and our struggles. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What? Jesus experienced all the temptation that you and I experienced, yet he never sinned. That's your priest. That's your high priest. Therefore, let us boldly come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Uh, go ahead into chapter 5 a little bit. Start, um, just for time's sake, go to verse 7 of chapter 5. Still speaking of Jesus, chapter 5 and verse 7. Who, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son... Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now let me explain that phrase for a minute. On the one hand, you can see a tremendous picture of Jesus' humility, right? But what does it mean that he learned obedience by the things he suffered? Listen, priests, in the, again, we're comparing the old covenant to the new. The priests of the old covenant had to learn their craft. They had to learn code. Listen, there's a reason why the priests were set aside and they didn't even have an inheritance in the land. They, their, enti- their inheritance was the ministry of the temple, the priesthood and the tribe of Levi that they had descended from. They were all descendants of Aaron, who was a Levite. And so, so the priesthood, they had to learn what they had to do in order to conduct their duties. And they had to learn it in such a way that they very specifically fulfilled every role that a priest... Otherwise, they, their sacrifices would not be accepted by God. They were told, slay an animal, wave it here, sprinkle it there, dab some blood here, pour it out there, burn this, give this part to this priest, give this part to... They're very specific instructions. There was a lot for a priest to learn if he was going to be a priest in, in the covenant of Israel. They had to learn what they had to do. You know how Jesus learned? You know how Jesus learned obedience? He learned obedience through his suffering. And we look at that and we struggle a little bit because it's like, how does Jesus have to learn anything? Listen, Jesus doesn't have to learn anything up here. Jesus is the author of all of this. You understand? Christ is not like learning the Bible or learning things like we, like humans would learn. But Jesus learned, that is, grew in the experience of his priesthood through his suffering. Right? If there was one thing that Jesus did not know, Before he came to earth, what was it? Suffering. He didn't know that. Now, he didn't know sin either, and he left this earth never knowing sin, which is amazing, right? But he came to earth and he learned through his suffering. What's it go on to say? It says, uh, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, see? He became, what? Essentially, our great high priest. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which I'll explain in a minute. Right? So you see what's going on there? Jesus, through his suffering on the earth, learned obedience the way a priest would learn obedience, but he became a priest of a completely different order because he is our high priest who passed through the heavens and is now called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I said that fast. You probably want to look it over and think it over some more after you go home. But to every Jew, to every Jew who has believed the gospel 
and is now having their minds blown by this idea of a new covenant that replaces the old covenant, this would make perfect, perfect sense. Because they knew acutely what a priest was and what a priest did. Brothers and sisters, I say this with the utmost respect and in all humility and not desiring to start fight with anyone or, or anything like that. But this is one of the biggest problems with the Roman Catholic Church. What do I mean? It's led by a priesthood. There is, there is no place for... And listen, in the system of religion, they believe that the, the doctrine... I'm not talking about the individual Catholics. But the official doctrine of that church is that what they call the Eucharist physically actually becomes the body of Jesus. And the wine in the cup physically actually transubstantiates into the blood of Jesus. Which means the priest is literally like a Jewish old covenant priest standing there handling a sacrificed body and shed blood every time they celebrate the Mass. The Roman Catholic practice of the Mass is much closer to the Jewish observance of the Old Covenant than it is to anything that resembles Jesus being our High Priest who passed through the heavens and sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The true Christianity is grace by faith, eternally justified, set free from the law. There is no need for an earthbound human priesthood. And I would dare to say that an earthbound human priesthood still offering sacrifices on behalf of other people is an abomination to God. Because His Son did it all. Jesus did it all. You sit and you listen to me today and and you wonder, why is Lou sharing all this, dropping all this on us? Well, number one, it's in the book of Acts. And we're going verse by verse through the book of Acts, so you're stuck with it. But number two, uh, look at the relevance. Look at the relevance. We don't know, maybe. We don't know maybe a lot of, well, we don't know any Jewish people who still practice all of this because the temple's gone. But the entire Roman Catholic religion which dominates a big part of our culture, even here in this part of the country, and is something like one out of every six or seven people on the planet, practice a religion that has a priesthood that sacrifices the body of Jesus every time they get together, when Jesus did it once. Historically, Christians have always understood this to be aberrant, say the least. It's why the entire, it's, it's one of the biggest reasons why the entire Protestant Reformation happened. And not just the Protestant Reformation, but untold multitudes of Christians were persecuted to their deaths for not submitting to it. You need to know this stuff. If you're going to be a servant of God and a worshiper of God, it's not just another form of Christianity. It's actually closer to being another form of Judaism with Christian labels on it. 
because of the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice, the sacrifice. Good, now that I've made almost everybody I know mad at me. Um, let's continue to go forward. Look in chapter 6 and verse 19. See, Jesus, the, the writer of Hebrews made this statement, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That gets fleshed out. Let's look ahead to chapter 6. I won't read it all, but chapter 6 and verse 19. Listen to this. This is brilliant, by the way. This is one of the really high, brilliant sections of the Bible. The whole Bible. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where... The forerunner has entered for us, Jesus, having become high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There's that again. Now listen to chapter 7. Now he explains it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Just quick pause. Are you familiar with the story in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 14 of Abraham going out and fighting a war against a group, being part of a war against a group of five kings, uh, one of those kings having taken his nephew Lot as, uh, as a captive, right? Abraham goes out and, and fights and wins, and then he finds himself in a place called Salem, which is the Hebrew word shalom, means peace. It's what eventually became Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is headed over by this person named Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. It's significant that he's a king and he's a priest. Right? He's a king and he's a priest. And he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. What's that? That's worship. It's a tithe. That's where the word tithe comes from. But the point isn't to preach about tithing. The point is to preach about worship, right? Abraham worshipped Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. First being translated king of righteousness, which is what the word means, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Salem means shalom, which means peace. Without father, without mother, Without genealogy, right? There's no record. Melchizedek just shows up. It's like, who is this? Well, you're having it explained to you. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. When you read Scripture, that's how Melchizedek is presented when you read Genesis chapter 14. Now, verse 4, consider how great this man was to whom even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who were the sons of Levi? Well, it says right there, who received the priesthood, right? So the Levites were the priests. The Levites had the priesthood. So uh, they have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. Right? So listen to this. Catch this. The law of Moses commanded the children of Israel to bring tithes to their brethren, the Levites, who had the priesthood as an act of worship to God. All right? Now follow this. Although they have come from the loins of Abraham. So they're all the... Dis listen to this now. 
They're all the descendants of Abraham. That's what it means. They came from the loins of Abraham. They're the descendants of Abraham. They received tithes from their own Israelite brethren. But look at the point that it goes on to make. He whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. In other words, the Levites received tithes. They received the worship of God in the form of the tithe from their own brethren. But because they're the descendants of Abraham, that same priesthood gave tithes to Melchizedek, who was the priest of the Most High God and the King of Jerusalem. And Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What does all that mean when you put all of that together? Jesus is a priesthood of a higher and completely different order. Jesus, being our high priest, negates, eliminates, um, outranks, if you will, the priesthood of the Levites. The fact that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended past the veil of the heavens and went all the way back to heaven and made that sacrifice and we believe on Jesus... Now Jesus is our priest and there's no more need for the Levitical priesthood because the superior priesthood is here now. Do you follow that? I'm trying to explain it as well as I can, but you need to understand it. You know, if you were ever a young believer, like I was, we all were at some point, was a young believer and I started reading the Bible from the beginning and when I came to Leviticus and I started to read it, I used to think to myself, why don't we do this? I mean, in my in my ignorance, I thought to myself, why don't churches have altars where they sacrifice animals? I mean, it looks like this is what God commands, right? I was completely ignorant of everything, right? Just kind of an honest, dumb thing like to, to think for someone who didn't know anything. But then you read the Bible and you begin to understand a deep truth like this. Jesus is not a priest. It goes on to say in this passage, I won't read any more of it. But it goes on to say in this passage that Jesus was not a descendant of Levi, was he? Jesus was a descendant of Judah. So Jesus, even by lineage, is completely separate from the Israelite priesthood among the Levites. So Jesus, being a priest in the order of Melchizedek, who received tithes, the act of worship from Abraham, with Abraham having still in his loins, as it were, At this point, his seed, that is the entire nation of Israel, including the Levitical priesthood, well, you can see what happened, right? When Jesus died and rose from the dead and went back to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, an entirely new priesthood that was established, that wiped out, obsoleted, made nothing the need for the existing Levitical priesthood. And this is that transitional period. God, through the book of Hebrews, is patiently teaching the Jewish believer in Jesus to transition out of that need for the old covenant. Do you follow that? Do you catch all that? Oh, I hope you get it's 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 wonderful scripture, isn't it? It's isn't it a blessing to understand this? I mean, these are things, the Bible, these are the kinds of things that the Bible says the prophets wanted to know, but it was hidden from their eyes and it was reserved for us who would believe I'm not even a Jew. I'm a Gentile. And yet God enables me to understand these things. 
And he, under, he enables us to understand the glory of what he intended all along. What this confirms for us is that our salvation really, truly is entirely by the grace of God through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gave his life for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. And that is it. That is all of it. Hallelujah. Don't look into anything else. Don't look into Old Covenant Judaism. Don't look into any sacramental form of supposed Christianity. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you are saved and you can trust him and you have been set free from the law of sin and death. Only use that freedom and use that liberty, not as an opportunity for the flesh, but use that, that freedom now that you have to love and to serve and to obey and to share the gospel with others. What a marvelous system. What a marvelous freedom. What a delightful, glorious System that we have been grafted into, that we can partake of these beautiful, glorious, heavenly things and just walk humbly in the fear of God, read His Word, study His Word, grow by the knowledge of His Word and become fruitful in His kingdom. Amazing. Glory to God. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. Hebrews. We're just going to stay here in Hebrews and that's it. Verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. What's the main point? Well, look what he says. Now, this is the main point of the things that we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve what? The copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, you see? The old covenant is the copy and the shadow of the real, true, heavenly covenant, which is the new covenant in Christ. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Right? Earthly tabernacle. But now he, that's Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. Hallelujah. Amen? You understand? Better covenant. Better promises. No need for the old anymore. God patiently teaching this to those myriads, myriads of zealous Jews who believed and were still zealous for the law. God didn't just smack them down. This, this letter is a great gift to teach patiently. You know, and this letter must have been written when the temple was still standing. Because chapter 10 refers to every priest standing every day and offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So the temple was still there. And, and there were still Jews who were zealous for the law. But this letter was written and circulated to try to show them you don't need that anymore. Now, let me close by reading the passage that Bob read for us earlier today. Go on. It's right there. It picks up right where we left off. Verse 7. 
For if that first covenant had been faultless, in other words, if that first covenant could have perfected us, then there would be no place for a second, basically, right? If the new covenant could save anybody, or if the old covenant, rather, could save anybody, there wouldn't be any need for a new one. So why is there a new one? Because the old covenant couldn't save anybody, right? Because finding fault with them, he says, now listen to this, this is glorious. This is something that, remember I told you before that the prophets came in the old days and they warned Israel to repent. They warned Judah to repent. And if they didn't repent, judgment was going to come in the form of exile. Jeremiah prophesied at a time when the Jews had gone so far away from God that he warned them literally of the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was going to come. He was going to take them all away. He was going to destroy the city. He was going to destroy the temple if they didn't repent. You know what they did? They mocked him. They rejected him. And the scripture records not one single Jew repenting at the preaching of Jeremiah. Sometimes I think I have it hard. Sometimes I think I have it hard if I go out and share the gospel with people and it doesn't seem like anybody responds. Jeremiah was a Jew and he preached in Jerusalem that people should turn to Yahweh. And they mocked him. They thought he was crazy. So God ended up bringing his judgment. But speckled in the great prophecy that Jeremiah wrote was this gem that now the Apostle Paul, in the days, the early days of the new covenant, brings out to share with believing Jews that they might understand that the old covenant isn't what they need anymore. It's so glorious. Listen. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That was the covenant God gave through Moses that involved the Levites and the tabernacle. In other words, God said, I'm going to make a new covenant that has nothing to do with any of that. Jeremiah prophesied it. The writer of Hebrews is saying, when Jesus came, that's what God put into place. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, all, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that beautiful? God says, you know what? Your fathers didn't obey the old covenant, so I'm going to write a new one. Not going to need any priests. Not going to need any of that. You're all just going to know. It's going to be in your heart. It's going to be in your minds. Now, that hasn't come to pass yet universally concerning the Jews, but it is coming to pass right now among the Gentiles, largely, and Jews who happen to believe. 
But it's that new covenant that Jesus has ushered you into through faith in His name. That's why the answer to my old question when I was a young man reading the Bible and ignorant of everything, how come we don't sacrifice like that anymore? This is why. That covenant's obsolete. Here's the new covenant. Verse 13 says, In that He says a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete. Just in case you thought that was my word that I was using there. Now what is becoming, becoming, you see the word becoming? What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, there's God being patient in the transitional time. You see the transition there? It was fading out. Now the moment was about to come where, wham, the Romans were going to come and it was going to be shut down. But God was being patient in trying to woo those Jewish believers. Now, I have no time left to explain to you why this is so important concerning what is happening when Paul is in Jerusalem. And I regret that. <laughs> but, 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 you know, the bottom line, the bottom line is this. The reason that there were all these believing Jews who were still zealous for the law is they didn't get this yet. But God was being patient with them. And as you read, you will see that Paul goes along with what they ask them. Or, or what, he, what they ask him. They ask him to basically prove that he still observes the law, even though in Paul's mind, I don't think Paul thinks that he needs to do anything according to the law. But he recognizes that God is being patient with his Jewish brethren. And so he goes along with what he's asked. And he submits to going to the temple and paying the expenses of those who had made the vow and all that. I'll explain all of that next week. But sufficient for today. Oh, man. Man, brothers and sisters, I hope you get this and I hope you love this. That's all I can say. I don't care if you love how I preach or not. That doesn't matter. But I hope you love this. I mean, this is it. This takes, this takes what God has done from the beginning and connects it to now. You're part of this. Give glory to God. All of it rests on the mighty, strong, broad shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who gave his life for our sins when he died. Was buried. And on the third day he rose from the dead. And in his blood is sealed this new and better covenant that through faith in his name and only through faith in his name, you have the privilege of participating in.